Well, good morning to everyone. Let's, uh, let's pray together one more time. Father, as we come to your word now, we ask you to speak, for we are listening and we desire to hear from you this morning, not just hear from me or uh, from each other, but to hear the voice of God speaking to us in the word of God. Um, your word is living and active. It's uh, not a dead letter. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, which pierces to the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow and judging the thoughts and intents of the heart. So we pray that your word would do its good searching work in our lives this morning so that we are able to see clearly through all the fog that gathers on our souls as we walk through this life and this fallen world. We need the clarifying power of your word to enter into our hearts again. So we thank you for these weekly times together where we gathered on the, to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and to hear from you and to fellowship together. Uh, and so this time is yours. Take it, use it, bless us for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen. So we begin a fall journey, uh, Lord willing, in the next couple months through this letter that John wrote, one of the probably the dearest, most closest friend of Jesus on the earth while he lived among us, was this one that we're going to be hearing from these next several months. So before we get into the first four verses of this letter this morning, just a, a little bit of introduction regarding why we're going through 1 John and, and things like that. So number one, uh, i just give you a couple general reasons here for why we do this. First of all, we're called to preach the word. That's what we're called to do as your pastors and what we're called to be as a church is to preach the word. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, which means all of our sermons we are trying to root in specific passages of scripture, opening those passages up and declaring their meaning and application to us. So that's our normal practice and we feel like the most helpful way to do that is to preach through books of the Bible. It's not the only way you can preach the word faithfully, but it is a way and we feel like it's the most helpful way for a second reason. Not only are we called to preach the word, but we're called, according to Acts chapter 20, verse 27, to preach the whole counsel of God, which means we don't just cherry pick the parts of scripture that we like. We, we, we try to provide a balanced diet to you as a church so that we're considering all different parts of scripture. So we find that a normally healthy practice is a switch back and forth between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, we won't always do that, but we find like it's, it's generally a helpful thing. So we've been considering for the last several months, the Old Testament book of Genesis, 14 or so chapters of that. So we're going to camp in a New Testament book for the next couple of months and unpack First John. And as we also try to deal with different aspects of Scripture, so we're not just talking about narrative passages like Joseph, but also teaching and letters, because and, the Bible comes to us with many different genres, and all those genres have importance and, and, and things to teach us. And so we feel like having just completed an Old Testament narrative, it's good to come to a, a New Testament letter. So let me give you, though, four specific reasons why First John. And they're actually the four reasons John himself gives, which I think are good and critical and healthy for us as a people together anytime. So here's John's four reasons for writing this letter to us, and there are four reasons for considering it, because his intention is our intention. First, John wrote this letter, according to verse 4, to promote joy. Any, all for joy, right? All for complete joy in our lives, all for the pursuit of joy and gladness in God? Absolutely. Who doesn't want that? And John's writing this letter for that reason, to promote joy, to promote joy in the Lord, an understanding of the Lord, and a greater joy in Him. Number two, John's writing to prevent sin. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So those two purposes go together, by the way. You can't have complete joy and pursue sin. So his purpose is to help prevent sin, guard us from sin, so that we might have fullness of joy. I'm all for that. You all for that? I hope so. Let's promote joy. Let's prevent sin. Number three, let's protect truth. Let's protect truth. Chapter 2, verse 26. Notice why John says he's writing again. Chapter 2, verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. 
See, there was a group of false teachers that were coming in in these early churches and trying to teach a different Jesus and promote a different way of uh, Christianity. And Paul's not interested in that. Paul's interested in holding faithfully to the teaching that he received from the Lord Jesus himself. And so we need to be about that as well. We need to know the truth so we can protect the truth. Promote joy, prevent sin, protect truth. A fourth reason, provide assurance. Provide assurance. Look at 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. This is the last time he uses that phrase, I write these things to you. But he says in verse 13 of chapter 5, I write these things to you who believe in the name of Son of God that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. See, one of the chief purposes of 1 John is to provide us with assurance that we belong to God, that we are safe in his keeping, that we are reconciled to him, that we are truly saved. That's why I've entitled this series, Signs of the Saved. Because John, goes, as he goes through this letter, his purpose is that we would know that we have eternal life. And to do that, he provides us with several different avenues of assurance that we can get on to identify the real evidences of Christianity. What are the signs of the saved? So before we get into this, let's just talk about the general things that he's going to discuss with us these next several months. John is going to talk to us about three primary signs, which he will unpack in lots of different ways, but three primary signs, three primary avenues by which we can be assured that we belong to him. Because it is possible to be a Christian and lack assurance that you're a Christian. It's also possible to have all kinds of assurance that you are a Christian and not be one. Both of those are possible. And John is writing to help preserve us from those two ditches. The first avenue is the belief area. It's the doctrinal area. It's what we believe in our heads about who Jesus is. So right belief about Jesus is a very important avenue to assurance. If we don't embrace the biblical Jesus, we can't be saved. So John is adamant over and over again that we get Jesus right. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. That's the first avenue, right belief about Jesus. The second avenue is right obedience to God. It has to do with our behavior. Well, the first avenue has to do with belief. The second avenue has to do with behavior. While the first avenue, belief, seeks to answer the question, do you believe Jesus is the eternal God who became man to die for our sins? The second avenue, obedience, asks the question, do you admit your sin and do you want to stop sinning and live a holy life for Jesus? Because it is impossible to have true assurance without obedience. So he talks about belief a lot. He talks about behavior a lot. Thirdly, he talks about relationships a lot. Specifically, our relationships to one another in the body of Christ. So it's not just right belief about Jesus and right obedience to God, but it's also right love for one another. Do you love your brothers and sisters sacrificially as God has loved you. So these are the three areas that John is going to talk to us about. Our beliefs, our behavior, and our relationships. Because it is impossible, John will argue, to be a Christian and not change theologically, morally, and relationally. Those are the three ways it shows up. True Salvation shows up in our heads, in our lives, and in our relationships. And by repeatedly applying these avenues of assurance, John is going to expose those who profess to know Christ but actually don't, and he will actually assure those who know Christ but have doubts about their salvation. Because as I said, it is possible to know Christ and have doubts, and it's also possible to profess Christ and be a liar. So self-examination is a positive and necessary exercise. 
is a positive and necessary exercise. In fact, what we're going to do tonight when we gather around the Lord's table and take the Lord's Supper together is an exercise in self-examination. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight: let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we are to examine ourselves and then that self-examination is to lead us not into not taking the Lord's Supper, but into taking the Lord's Supper rightly. And then 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. 2 Peter 1.10, Peter, the apostle of Jesus, also says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. That is to make sure you're a Christian. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Remember last week's catechism question? Let me remind you. This is question 34 of the New City Catechism. Maybe, yeah, question 34. Since we are redeemed by grace alone through Christ alone, must we still do good works and obey God's word? We answered, yes. Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his spirit so that our lives may show love and gratitude to God so that we may be assured of our faith by the fruits. See, the way we live serves as an avenue of assurance to us. Our con- one of our confessions of faith that we use as a church, the 1689 Baptist Confession, also highlights the importance of this in, parag- in chapter 18, paragraph 3, when it says, Therefore is the duty of every one, every Christian, to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure, that's just the confession quoting the verse we just said from 1 Peter, that thereby his heart, that is the heart of a Christian, may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, that's what we're after, in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience, the proper fruits of this assurance. So, this will be the last thing before we get into the text. There are ditches on both sides of the path to heaven. And by God's grace, we're going to try to avoid both of those ditches through this series. One ditch is the ditch of presumption, right? It's just, of course I'm saved. I prayed the prayer, didn't I? I got baptized. I went to church as a kid. I'm saved. It's just the presumption which is so characteristic of so many professing Christians. Of course I'm saved. That kind of casual approach to Christianity is unbiblical. God commands you to examine yourself. And self-examination is God's appointed means of delivering us from that kind of presumptive attitude. But there's another ditch. Not just the ditch of presumption, but the ditch of despair. That is, I don't know. I don't think anybody can know if they're saved or not. I'm certainly not. I mean, I'm not perfectly obedient. I don't think I know Jesus as well as the Bible says I should. I certainly don't love people as sacrificially as I need to. I'm probably not a Christian. It's that despairing attitude, which which is very common as well. And God will not, listen, believer, God will never use his warnings about presumption to drive you into despair. That's what the devil does. It's not what God does. We are to have an equal horror of both dangers. We are to have a horror against presumption, but we're equally to have a horror against despair. Both of them are, are wrong. Both of them are terrible. And if we do have an equal horror for both of those, we are right where God wants us to be. We are right on the center of the path to glory. No presumption, but no despair. A anchored hope in Jesus that is firm and fixed and growing in obedience to him and love for others. And this series intends to do that, to put us squarely in the center, on the path to to glory, 
avoiding the ditches of presumption and despair and offering us a sober warning, but in the context of warm, hopeful commendation. That's the way John writes. He writes with, an, with, a, with a, a tone of sober warning, but always, always with a warm pastoral commendation about everything he says. And that's what I hope to do. I want John to take his pastoral heart and place it in me so that his voice under the inspiration of God's Spirit comes through as he pastors us well through his letter. So this morning, we get into the, we get into the letter. All that's intro. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-4 through 4 is what we're going to look at. And this is his introduction to the letter. And in it, in this brief four verses that he opens up this letter with, he describes three circles of fellowship or three circles of community that exist. And, it, and it's, it's a beautiful picture, and I hope that you're encouraged by it this morning. So I've entitled this sermon in the three circles of fellowship, and we're going to look at those three circles that John talks about in these first four letters. And let's get right into it. Here's the first circle, circle number one. The first circle of, of fellowship is God the Father and Jesus Christ. God the Father and Jesus Christ. And I just want to slide this in here. The Holy Spirit's there too, okay? He's in the fellowship that God the Father and Jesus Christ enjoy. He's just not mentioned here because John's point is to emphasize the relationship between the Father and the Son, not to give an exhaustive treatment of the doctrine of the Trinity, okay? So he's just here to talk about Here's the, here's the first circle of relationship that exists in the universe. It's God the Father and God the Son. Now, let's see that here in 1 John chapter 1. Look at, first of all, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, before time, eternally, that existed in eternity. What, what was, what was in the, from the beginning? What was in the beginning? Notice verse 2 in the middle there, which was with the Father. The Father. So the Father was there in eternity. We get that much. It was with the Father. Who was with the Father? Well, John says it a number of different ways here. First of all, he says, the word of life. Did you see that at the end of verse 1? Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and which was with the Father. Then we see in the middle of verse 2, we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father. So he's talking about a life, an eternal life, a word of life, that from the beginning was with the Father. Strange language. Eternal life, life with the Father. Who is this? Who's he talking about? Well, let's look at 1 John chapter 5, the end of the letter, verses 11 and 12, and he gives us the answer. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So the Father has a Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So you see the circle? There's a father in eternity with a son who's called the eternal life, the word of life. That's what's back before the beginning. Before there was a beginning, there was an eternal relationship that existed between the father and his son, whom we discover is the Lord Jesus Christ. So this says a couple of things about who Jesus is, right? Jesus, the son of God, is eternal. He had no beginning. He will have no ending. He's not part of creation. In the beginning, he was the source of creation. All life comes from him. In fact, in John's gospel, the gospel of John, who's the same author as this author, writes in the beginning of that letter, or that gospel, that narrative about the life of Jesus, in, 1 John, or in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
So God the Father and God the Son had an eternal relationship back before the beginning. And brothers and sisters, this means that Christianity has a radically, radically different conception of God than any other world religion or faith. This is utterly unique. The doctrine of the Trinity of an eternal God existed in three, in three persons for all eternity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This is unique to Christianity. It's unique to the Bible. And it teaches, the reason why it's unique, because it teaches that God exists in relationship with himself. God's never been alone. He didn't create He created the universe out of an overflow of the community that already existed in himself. And he desired to bring some people into that community, which we'll look at in a few moments. This is why John can say in this letter, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. How can God be love if he has no one to love? He does have someone to love. He's loved himself for all eternity. And it's not just a love that's centered on the Father loving the Father and the Son loving the Son and the Spirit loving the Spirit. No, it's a love where they are each loving each other. They are each caring for each other. They are each glorifying and serving each other. And the reason that God is love is because God is Trinity. The life of the Trinity is characterized by love, not by self-centeredness, but by mutual self-giving service. We can't understand that, but the Bible teaches it, and as a Christian, if you're here this morning as a, as a believer, you're going to experience it one day, and you're experiencing it in part now. This is a, I, I can't think of a more beautiful, compelling, attractive vision of God than this. To, to know that there exists in the universe a community of persons that exists in mutual self-giving love for one another is amazing. It's independ He's independent of us. And yet, his, at the heart of who he is, is love. That's what Tim Keller says about the Trinity. Each of the divine persons centers upon the others. None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in the others. That creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. Amen. What a beautiful vision of who God is. A circle of fellowship that exists between the Father and the Son and the Spirit where none of them are demanding anything of each other but are revolving around each other, voluntarily circling each other, pouring love and delight and adoration into each other such that each defers to and rejoices in the other, creating a dynamic of pulsate, a pulsating dance of joy and love. That's the first circle. Circle number one, God, the Father, and Jesus Christ. Circle number two. Circle number two. Now, I want you to think of these circles as sort of overlapping, okay? They're not just three circles that are separated from each other, but they're three circles that are involved with each other and overlapping with each other. Here's the second one. God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit, and the apostles of Jesus Christ, okay? Who have been invited in to understand who God is because they dwelt for three years with the second person of the Trinity while he walked the earth as the eternal son of God. They got up close and personal in a way that no one else did with God himself. The very life of God, they witnessed 
the communion that existed between the Father and the Son as they heard him pray. And they saw the Spirit working in him to do miracles and to give instruction and bring conversion and healing. And they saw when he was baptized how the son, how the how the, 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 the dove descended upon, and the, or the spirit in the form of a dove, descended on the son, and the father announced, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. They, they got a glimpse into the life of the Trinity. They got to see a transfigured son of God dwelling between Moses and Elijah and seeing something of the glory that he had before he came to earth. So there's this community that these apostles have been invited into. Now, here's what they say about it. Notice, they say in verse 2 that the life was made manifest. That is, this eternal life, this word of life, this Jesus, this Son of God was made manifest. In other words, he came into the world. This is what John says in his gospel. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, John says, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is truly God who became truly man. He's not half man and half God. He's not all God and no man. He's not all man and no God. He is not merely a man who was simply and deeply in touch with the divine. No, he is the God-man. And this life, according to verse 2, was made manifest to John and the apostles. Do you see what he says there in verse 2? The life was made manifest, and we have seen it. We've seen it. We have heard. We have... Now, let's just get into these verbs. These verbs are unbelievable. The things that they say about their relationship to God are amazing. I want you to just notice this. He says... We have heard. There's lots of language of sense perception here. We have heard. We heard the voice of the Son of God speaking to us. We heard the voice of God the Father speaking to His Son. We've seen the work of the Holy Spirit. We've seen the work of the Son of God. We've seen the work of the Father in and through the Son of God. We have, according to verse 1, looked upon it. Verse 1 says, we have touched, touched him. We've heard, we've seen, we've looked upon, we've touched. And we testify and proclaim this to you, according to verse 2 and 3. See what's happening? See what's happening? God has invited in to the circle, the first circle of fellowship, these apostles, these men who were called by Jesus to be with him. Now, these apostles were with Jesus. But notice, and I think I just want to make a side application here regarding how we speak of Jesus and the importance of testimony in terms of evangelism. So notice these verbs that they use to talk about what they're doing and what John's doing in this letter. Verse 2, verse 3, he says, We testify and we proclaim to you. So testify and proclaim are two different Greek words. They, they emphasize different things. They're not the same thing. So what he's saying here is we're, we're testifying. We're giving you verbal experience records. We want to tell you what it was like to be with him. I'm not just telling you this because it got downloaded, you know, from some supernatural cybercomputer into my brain, and I'm just going to re- just talk about the data of who God is, and this is the way he is, like we're printing it off or something. It's like, no, I'm testifying. I'm telling you what it was like to be with him. And he says, and I proclaim to you. So it's not either or. It's not, do I talk about my experience or do I talk about the truth? Like factual, objective truth. Do I talk about subjective experience or do I talk about objective truth? Yes. Yes. And can I just tell us to be this way? We're all going to... tilt to one end or the other. In our, I'm thinking about our relationships right now in family and at work and in, in, in other circles of relationships that we have of people that don't know Jesus. All right, we're going to default to one or the other. We're going to either talk about our experience all the time 
And people are going to say, that's good for you. I'm glad you've had that experience. Good for you. That's, that's not for me. Or we're going to be like objective truth all the time. Never talk about our experience. My experience doesn't matter. What matters is this is true and you've got to reckon with it. Listen, it's both. You need to be both. You need to talk to people in such a way that you're talking about things that are you personally experienced, but that apply to them. And it's not just all about my experience, but it's also about the factual reality of who Jesus is, regardless whether you believe him or not. So we have to get both of those categories in our, test, in our, in our evangelism, in our testifying of who Jesus is. We need to talk about the difference that Jesus is making in our lives. How does he help you? How does he bless you? How has he loved you? How has he cared for you? What difference does that make to you? We need to talk about that. So that people actually say, wow, I wish I had that. But then also, it's not just all me and Jesus and all my experience, but it's also, here's some objective realities that we're having to deal with here. And so it's not either or, it's both and. That's, that's for free. That went on too long. But that was a little side application unrelated to the main point. So let's continue here in the second circle. The apostles were with Jesus. But here's the, here's the good news is that we too can have the same fellowship with Jesus that the apostles had. Not in every single way. I mean, we can't have a physical encounter with a physical Christ. He's not here to have that physical encounter with. But nevertheless, they wrote of him. John knew that he wasn't going to be around much longer, but the church was, and Jesus wasn't coming back just yet. So he wrote a letter so that we could have fellowship with God through his fellowship with God. The writers themselves took tremendous pains over what they wrote. And the writers of the New Testament and Old Testament wrote with the assurance and conviction of men who were writing about real events that actually happened. They're not fabricating fond tales or delusional experiences they had walking around on an LSD trip with hippie Jesus. They're not, they're, they don't write like that. These are, these are men who are not fabricating fond tales from the depths of their own imaginations. They're passing on what they've heard, seen, and experienced, what they've touched. Listen to what Luke says, another friend of an apostle, says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken..." This is the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word..." have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, who he's writing to, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. See, I want you, I want you to know that the things that other people have told you are what I experienced. So here's my eyewitness te testimony. And this is the most valuable testimony that we have. Right? If you're in a court of law and you're appearing before a judge or whatever, the most valuable data that you have is eyewitness testimony. Who was there and what did they see? That's, that's the only concrete thing we have. We make them swear under oath so they won't lie about it. But that's the only concrete thing we really have is what you see. Did you see it? And John and Luke and Paul and other, other apostles say, we saw it. We were there. Believe us. Trust us. Rest on what we are saying and be assured that what we are writing to you is not just the result of our own interpretation of a certain scenario or situations or, or things that we experienced, but are actually divinely inspired. See, this is what John says in John chapter 14, verses 26 and 16, verse 3, the Holy Spirit, through when Jesus is speaking to the apostles, says that he is going to come and he's going to bring to remembrance all the things that he's taught, all the things that he's done. The Holy Spirit was going to come in behind Jesus and make sure the apostles got it right. They weren't left up to their own 
perceptions of things, as valuable as those things are. So how sure of a word do we have? We've got a word from men who were with Jesus, and we got it divinely stamped and sealed by the Spirit himself, saying they're not going to get it wrong. I'm going to make sure of it. Now, lest we think that we're the first generation to have ever lived struggling with or living among people who have struggled to believe all that, let me give you the words from one of our founding fathers, Ben Franklin. All right, Ben Franklin perfectly exhibits this aversion to this historical take that John is giving and Luke is giving. In a letter dated March 9th, 1790, it's been a little while, uh, to Ezra Stiles, uh, Benjamin Franklin writes the following. As to Jesus of Nazareth, I think the system of morals and his religion as he left them to us are, are, are just the best the world will ever see or likely to see. But I apprehend it has received various corrupting changes. And I have, with most of the present dissenters in England, some doubts as to his divinity. Though it is a question I do not dogmatize upon. He's an agnostic. Having never studied it, and think it needless to busy myself with it now. I think he wishes he wouldn't have done that now. I think he wishes he would have busied himself with understanding who Jesus is now, about 230 years later. Why, why that argument? Why that, well, he's, got, he's a good moral teacher, he's, he's done some good things, but, you know, I don't think he's the son of God. And I think that claim to divinity is a bit nuts, but I don't want to be too picky about it. And by the way, I'm too busy running the country to study it, so sorry. Here's the reason why people tend to have that kind of dis dis dismissal. Here's what John Piper says. This is the stumbling block of the incarnation when God becomes a man. Here's, here's why. He strips away every pretense of man to be God. We can no longer do our own thing. We must do what this one Jewish man wants us to do. We can no longer pose as self-sufficient because this one Jewish man sees we are all sick with sin and must, we must come to him for healing. We can no longer depend on our own wisdom to find life because this one Jewish man who lived for 30 obscure years in a little country in the Middle East says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When God becomes a man, man ceases to be the measure of all things. And this man becomes the measure of all things. This is simply intolerable to the rebellious heart of men and women. The incarnation is a violation of the bill of human rights written by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It is totalitarian. It's authoritarian. Imperialism, despotism, usurpation, absolutation, absolutism. Who does this man think he is? God is who he thinks he is. God. He says, I'm God. And if he's God, end of debate. No discussion. Reject me or follow me, but that's it. And so have the honesty to say, I know he's God. I'm not submitting to him, though. No way. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it. So that's the circle number two. We have circle one, God the Father and Jesus Christ. We have circle number two, God and the apostles. And here's circle number three. God, the apostles, and us. God, the apostles, and us. Look at this. Look at verse three. That which we have seen and heard, we apostles, John and his company, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Why? So that, here's the purpose, you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We're invited in. We get in. Praise God. We get access to relationship and fellowship with God. 
And he says, we get it through the apostles. Now, how do we have fellowship with the apostles? They're all dead. They're all in heaven with Jesus. How do we have fellowship with dead people? We don't pray to them, certainly. Bad idea. Okay? We have fellowship with them through the letters they have written to us, through the gospels they have written to us, through the testimony that they have given to us about Jesus. So our study, our walk through 1 John is an exercise in fellowship. We're fellowshipping with John as he tells us about Jesus so that we can have fellowship with Jesus. That's all it is. We have fellowship with Jesus through the word that has been written to us about him. And that word is going to carry us through this life till one day we get to lay down this book forever and we get a fellowship with our God face to face. No need for a book anymore. And it's not like we're just having fellowship with a raw letter. Brothers and sisters, we have the Holy Spirit living within us. The same Holy Spirit that indwelt and empowered the Son of God, that inspired the writings of the apostles. We have that same Spirit dwelling in us. We have the same Lord Jesus Christ who has pledged himself and who is currently in union with us. And the same Father who has adopted us and claimed us as his own. We have a much more profound fellowship than just reading this book. But this book gets us into that experience. This book leads us into that experience. So, this is why it's so important, and this is my applications here, this is why it's so important to avail ourselves of every opportunity we can to be in this book. Because this is the way that God is bringing us into fellowship with himself. Now, there are three ways primary ways, I think, that that fellowship is brought to us. This is three ways that we have fellowship with God through the apostles. Now, let me just be clear here. The apostles are not mediating God to us in the sense the way the Lord Jesus is our Savior and mediator. The apostles are passing on experience and instruction to us that they have received from Jesus in obedience to the Great Commission so that we can have fellowship with God. It's a direct line, but it's through what we've learned from them. So how do we learn from them? Well, we learn from them, here's one way, the public ministry of the Word, what we're doing now. This is one avenue where we instruct you, each other, about the Word, what what it is, what it means, what it says, so that we can have fellowship with God. So that occurs here on Sunday mornings. It occurs in Sunday school classes the hour before this. It occurs this evening prior to the Lord's Supper as the Word of God is opened. It occurs on third Sunday evenings as the Word of God gets opened. Anytime the public ministry of the Word is happening, we should desire it. We should desire to be there because God is inviting us into fellowship with Him. Second, there's the personal ministry of the Word. That is the ministry that exists between believers. I'm thinking interpersonal, not private here, but interpersonal. The things that we share with one another from the Word, the things that we speak to one another, which is as important and as critical for our growth and maturity in Christ as what we're doing now. In fact, in some ways, it's biblically more important because it happens more. This happens for 45 minutes once a week. And if we attend Sunday school and evening service, we might get another 45 or a 30 minute here. But how many other hours are there in the week where we are called to speak God's word to each other? This occurs in community groups. It occurs over dinner tables. It occurs in the car. It occurs on cell phones. It occurs in just conversations that we're having before or after services or as we get together in informal events and we're speaking and encouraging one another with the word of God. I, got, I, hope you, I hope you get that. I hope you get that. I hope you get steady streams of biblical truth into your life from friends and brothers and sisters and family members that love you. If you don't, start doing it for others and you'll have more than you can take. 
public ministry of the word, personal ministry of the word, and then finally private ministry of the word. This is our own time in the Bible, reading it prayerfully with God. So all those are ways that we access the fellowship that we've been invited into. And lest, lest, lest I close on a Debbie Downer of duty, reminding you of all the ways that you need to engage the Bible that you're not presently engaging, let me encourage you with the way John encourages you. This pursuit is a joyful pursuit. Okay? Fellowship with God is not boring. It, it takes discipline, but everything worthwhile is uphill. In, name one thing in life that's worth, that's worth it that isn't hard. Everything that's worthwhile, a good marriage, a good relationship with my kids, a strong church, a, faithful, a faithfulness in, in my walk with God, that all, a diet and exercise, that all requires work. It's work. It's all uphill. <laughs> in this world, it's all uphill because we live in a fallen world. But it's a joy. That's what, Paul, that's what uh, John says. He says in verse 4, we're writing these things so that our, your, our collective joy will be complete. This is, this is it's, not, it's not hard for me to sit down and write a letter to you, John says. It's, it's, a, it's a joyful thing. Listen, if at the heart of the universe is a community of persons named the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who know and love one another, then ultimate reality is defined by that. Right? That's what ultimate reality is. What is ultimate reality? Communities of love. That's the ultimate reality. This is what the universe, God, life, history is all about. This means, brothers and sisters, that if we pursue a life of individualism, a pursuit of life that's defined by me, my wants, my wishes, instead of relationships, self-giving, self-sacrificial relationships, you are dashing yourself against the rocks of reality and don't be surprised if you're struggling. A selfish, individual pursuit of life is a destructive life because it's unreal. It exists only in your mind. It's not the universe that God made. So if you want a marriage that's marked by me, 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 expect divorce. It's not real. It's, it's false. Self-giving. Me for you. Me for you. Me for you. That's the life we're called to be and live. That's life. So wake up every day, me, on on. The, 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 laying my life down in service to other people. When Jesus said you must lose yourself in service and love to him and others in order to find yourself, it's that, why did he say that? He who will save his life will lose it. Why did he say that? Because that's what the Father, Son, and Spirit do. They've been doing that for all eternity. And we are made in his image. You will never get a sense of self by standing still and making everything revolve around your needs and interests unless you are willing to experience the loss of options and individual limitations that come from being in committed relationships, which in part is what church membership is meant to do. It's meant to rescue our joy because we're so individual and we just want to do our own thing. And when we're in covenant with each other, we actually feel like we have got obligations. And that's good. It serves our joy. It rescues us from the defeating individualistic pursuits that we might engage in. We, if we only, if we are willing to experience the loss of options and the individual limitations that come from being in committed relationships, then we'll remain out of touch with our own nature and the nature of reality. Listen, we believe the world was made by a God who is a community of persons who have loved each other for all eternity. And you and I were made for mutually self-giving, other-directed love. Self-centeredness destroys joy because it runs against the grain of the way we're made and the fabric of reality that God has created. 
This is why we cry and we weep over acts of sacrifice. It just comes out of our soul. Why? Why? Because we're made for that. Since God has infinite happiness, not through self-centeredness, but through self-giving, other-centered love, then the only way that we, who've been created in his image, can have the same joy as if we center our entire lives around him and other people instead of ourselves. And we will know fullness of joy. The happiest people in this room are the people that have died to themselves so deeply, and I don't count myself among their number, who have died to themselves so deeply that they know what it is to live every day for God and others. I learned as a young Christian, in a, when I didn't know anything, as a 15-year-old new convert, when the Sunday school teacher asked me, Mark, what was the event that, dis, that separated the Old Testament and the New Testament? I said, what's a testament? Uh, I don't know. Is that when God made the world? He said, no, that's back at the page one. He said, no, it's when, it's when, it's when Jesus came in. And he started to give me little, little acronyms that I could grab onto and I begin to understand. So he gave me, you know, a little acronym for faith. What's faith? For all I trust him. That's faith. What's grace? Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. What's joy, Mark? Jesus, others, and you. And that's what John said. Jesus, others, and you. Let's pursue a life of joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder in your word this morning of the pursuit of joy, the way in which you have communicated to us about yourself and the life that exists in you. Thank you for apostles that lived among and with Jesus and are able to pass on by their own experience and under the inspiration of your spirit, are able to pass on what they have learned and seen and heard to us so that we too may have fellowship with you knowing that your fellowship is a loving self-giving other oriented fellowship make us more like yourself God make us more self-giving for the sake of our eternal joy we pray in Jesus name amen